Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. <laughs> hey, it is uh, great to be back with you. I want to welcome you here. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to welcome you in, whether it's here in our worship center or over in the Ridge. But I uh, want to jump into our time of teaching. Uh, thank you so much for your, your prayers uh, for, for our team. We're over in Uganda. I know a lot of you are following along with the video. It's just an amazing time. I'm sure I'll be uh, talking with you more about that uh, as weeks go on and even a little bit later today. But we're going to go to our time of teaching right now. So inside our program is a green and white message note sheet. encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yes, All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be pursuing you as a church. And it seems like every week that you're meeting us in new ways and you're opening our eyes to new things and what it means to really to understand, to know, and to follow you. And so we pray that today, God, as we talk about this important topic, you'd speak powerfully through your spirit. Give us ears to hear, to respond, and to follow you into your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today in Africa. And uh, he's 10 years old. And uh, along with everyone else in the country, he's excited because they've got a brand new leader of the nation. And uh, they've just come through a difficult time. No one was really big on the leader that they'd had. And so everyone is excited about this new man that stepped in the leadership role. The future looks bright. They're excited about that. But it doesn't take long for things to start to go south. And uh, things begin to unravel. And before time, uh, before long, it's kind of like the cure is worse than the disease. And so um, things are going bad. And a kind of a reign of terror starts. And so first of all, he expels all Asian people from the country. And next, he's going to expel all Westerners. He's going to confiscate their business from the country. Next, he's going to expel all Israelis from the country. And next, he's going to turn his rage and his fury on followers of Jesus And by the time he's done with his reign of terror, 500,000 people are going to be dead. Well, today, we are wrapping up this series that we've been in the last eight or nine weeks called Unfiltered, revealing the character of the kingdom. And if if you've been here, you know this is a series about Jesus. Uh, our, Our goal in this series has really been to go back in time and to gain some, what we call some unfiltered view of, uh, unfiltered views of Jesus. We, we all tend to have, kind of recreate Jesus in our own image. We all have images of Jesus based on things maybe we were taught when we were young, or PBS documentaries, or Trends in Society, or things we've been taught, or whatever. And so our goal has been to go back to the, very, to the first century, to one of the earliest and most important documents that actually describes the life and teaching of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. See if we can get some unfiltered, capture some new images of who Jesus really was, is what it looks like to follow him. And so in this second series in uh, Unfiltered, we've been looking at some teaching of Jesus, the most famous teaching of Jesus ever given. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been with us in this series, you know it starts with these eight startling statements we call the Beatitudes, because they all start with the word blessed are, this kind of category of people. In Latin, the word for blessing is beatus, and so we call them the Beatitudes, but they're kind of startling. And so today we come to the eighth and final statement. As Jesus begins to explain, like, here's what it means to like to be part of his kingdom. Here's the character of his kingdom. Here's what it's uh, kind of like to join in. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the final Beatitude, the call to courage. And if you have your Bibles, your apps, just open up and turn on to chapter 5 of Matthew. And um, 
We'll pick it up at verse 1, but we're not going to read through the, the whole chapter. But as we do, let me just set it up again quickly for those of you who are new or for those of you who've been here but not paying attention. So uh, it's, I always like to set up this teaching because the context is so important, right? So, so Jesus is coming to the north of Galilee, and he makes this epic pronouncement that other uh, leaders have made in the past that he claims that the, the long-promised kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God, a time when God would recome, restore his people, come back to his people, forgive the nation of their sins, restore them uh, to a place of prominence, turn all wrongs to right, even a new heavens and a new earth, that, that this kingdom is very near. And then, of course, he's backing it up, not just making the epic claim, but he's backing up with the signs of the kingdom. He's healing the sick, uh, raising the dead, uh, freeing demoniacs. And so, so there's like, there's evidence that what he's saying is true. And so as a result, hundreds and thousands of people are coming from increasingly distant uh, areas, of, uh, the distances to, to hear him teach. And so that's where we pick it up in 5.1. He says, so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, he sat down, his disciples, his followers came to him and he began to teach them. And of course, we have these eight beatitudes, these eight startling kind of statements. Here's the path to life. Um, here's, what, here, here's how you get the blessed life. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs what? Is. Can we say that together? Theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Literally, in the, in the greats. Theirs is the kingdom. Now, I want you to hold on to that. Let's go to the last beatitude now, which is in verse 10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for doing the right thing because theirs what? Is the kingdom. Now I want you to catch that. The first beatitude and the last beatitude, they both in the same way. Blessed are this kind of person for theirs is the kingdom. The rest of the beatitudes, the six in between, don't, they don't go that way. They all refer to future. So for example, in 5.4, if you go back, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, future, comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. So he starts and ends with theirs is, but in between there's six beatitudes, theirs will be. Now, two things I want you to notice from that. Number one is, this is very important for understanding Jesus, his message, his movement, is that according to Jesus, this kingdom of the heavens is both started, it's something that's now, but it's something that is future, all right? So it's, it's, not, it's both present and future. So he can say the kingdom of the heavens is near. He can invite people to enter the kingdom. He can say to some, you're not far from the kingdom. And through his life and death and resurrection, he can initiate the kingdom. And so as we move out into the New Testament, the apostle Paul will say the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, joy, and peace. So the kingdom is now, and yet there's an aspect of where it will be. And so we pray that his kingdom will come and his will will be done, right? That there's a future kingdom when the promises, the prophets of all wrongs to be turned to right will come. And so we're kind of in this in-between season. In theology, we, call the, we say the kingdom is already, but not yet, all right? So the kingdom is both future and as both present and future. That's very important to understand the whole message of Jesus as we go through this whole uh, gospel. Secondly, I want, you to under, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how intentional Jesus is in his teaching. Often we think of Jesus, and he's often portrayed, if you've seen movies, like it always drives me crazy how Jesus is portrayed in movies. 
But he often has this like head in the clouds. He's kind of this mystic guy, just kind of going through space. And then he just like spontaneously starts throwing out these pearls of wisdom. As if it's just rolling off the top of his head. You know, can just roll on the tongue. So what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is a very gifted teacher. And he has carefully crafted his teaching. And we see that right here at the beginning of the Beatitudes because the first and the last, it's not a coincidence, theirs is the kingdom, and the middle six are, theirs will be the kingdom. We call this in literature, some of you have understood, we call this an inclusio. When you have a, a, a story, a work of literature that starts and ends the same way, it's like bookends on a subject that helps you mentally get your, your, your frame around. And so it's in a very intentional way of creating teaching or writing. And what we're going to see as we go through the Gospels is that Jesus is a very gifted teacher. He has been studying the Word of God his whole life. You remember back in our previous series in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus at 12 years old was in the temple. He's asking the religious leaders questions. He's answering their questions. He's learning. Remember, he's growing in wisdom. Remember it said that? And then remember we saw in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, it's a prophecy about the Messiah where Jesus, the Messiah says, he says, Yahweh awakens me every morning. And he says, he has given me an instructed tongue to know how to encourage the weary. And he awakes me every morning to instruct me about how he should teach. And so Jesus is, for the last 30 years as he's grown up, has been studying the word, seeking his father. And now it's time for us to launch his teaching. And it's not like he just goes out in a hill sometimes. Well, what should I say? Oh, here we go. Like he has carefully crafted his teaching, his illustrations to best communicate the message that God has given him to give. All right, so... Uh, so I want to take off kind of that filter of, you know, let's, let's see Jesus as a very gifted, bright, uh, intellectual, thoughtful, planned out teacher, all right? Now, what he says today in this eighth, uh, in this eighth and final beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, how many of you feel super blessed when you're persecuted? Can I see your hands like... This was an awesome day. I was ostracized. I was criticized. I was insulted. This is what I'm talking about, baby. This is what I live for. All right, so, so what we're going to see today is, as we've often seen in these eight statements of Jesus, this path to the good life, it's often counterintuitive. It's not what you expect. It's surprising. And I think it may have been surprising uh, particularly surprising for the disciples that were sitting there because in their mind, when the kingdom of the heavens comes, it's a time when all wrongs get turned to right. When the kingdom comes, it's when the evil and the proud and the arrogant and the oppressors are taken down. It's a time when the righteous are vindicated and set free. And yet Jesus says, as members of the kingdom, you're going to be persecuted. Wait a second, that's not how this story goes. Or at least, well, all he could be saying is that, well, maybe the rise to power is going to be a little bit tough. You see? But he goes on to talk more about this. And he says, so blessed are you. Imagine you're sitting there and just feeling so blessed. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of things of evil. They lie about you because of me. Notice there, it's because of Jesus. Sometimes I've known Christians who I affectionately like to call jerks for Jesus (laughs) who are lazy, backbiters, hypocritical, and then they say, my boss hates me because I'm a Christian. No, he doesn't hate you because you're a Christian. He hates you because you're you. (laughs) So, So let's make sure that we're hated for the right reason, right? So... He says, so blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, and say all kinds of evil because of me, not because of you. Uh, Rejoice and be glad. Hey, throw a party, celebrate. Well, why? Because great is your reward, literally in the Greek, in the heavens. So he's not saying that one day you get to heaven and have a reward. He's saying in the heavens where God reigns, he says right here, your reward is going to be great. Your future is bright. And so one of the things we've seen all through the Beatitudes is when Jesus is, is kind of spelling out the path to the blessed life, life to the full, he's always taking the long view. For Jesus, this life is short, the next life is long, and it's very real, it's very physical, it's very tangible, it's not like playing, uh, you know, playing the harp on a cloud, it's not ethereal, right? So it's a new heavens, a new earth, it's amazing, and so only a fool would live this life for this life. This would be like a junior hire they can't see past Friday. So they just live for this way. And so, so a wise parent comes along and says, hey, listen, I know that this party, this group of friends, this thing seems so important now, but trust me, for the long run, you need to make some different choices. You need to buckle down. You need to choose some different friends. You need to do. Why? Because the parent's looking for the blessed life in the long run. And Jesus always is too. So he says, you need to rejoice. When, you, when you're hated for the right reason, you need to rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in the heavens. Like you're on the winning team. He says, from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in his day, people would, you know, they're heroes. We're like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They look back. These are the heroes of our nation. They look back on them like we would look back on people like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Samuel Adams, you know, uh, the, the man, not the drink, but, you know, uh, they look back at these heroes and they say like, oh man, those are our guys. And Jesus saying, yeah, but remember in their day, Isaiah was cut in two. In their day, Jeremiah ended up at the bottom of the cistern and almost died. And in their day, Ezekiel went away into exile. That yes, that's who we want to be, like the prophets, but remember what it was like. He said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be like that for you too. That if you're going to be part of my kingdom, you will be persecuted. You will be insulted. You will be lied about and worse. He says, but when it happens, don't get depressed. Get excited because you're on the winning team. That's what it means, all right? So the question is, how do we take this applies to our life? So what I want to do today is in this final message on this series, I want to highlight three important principles that flow out of this teaching of Jesus on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, kind of the character of his kingdom, what it means to be a part of his movement today, and then end with one final question that I almost forgot to ask at the last service because I got so carried away. So... So here we go. There on your note sheet, you have a section that's called the final beatitude, the cost of the kingdom. Let's jump in. 
Number one, the first thing that jumps out from this teaching of Jesus is that countercultural is controversial. Countercultural is controversial. So here's what I mean. I don't know if you remember this, but if you were to go back to the very first week of this series, remember we didn't start with the first beatitude. What I did that very first week, introduced the series, I said, let me give you five principles about the teaching of Jesus that are going to guide us through not only this sermon, not only the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, but his whole teaching, right? And one of those principles was that Jesus' teaching is both counterintuitive and countercultural. I don't know if you remember that. So counterintuitive means that Jesus is telling us the path to life. He's, he's kind of like, but it's, it's counterintuitive. It's like he's telling us to turn into the slide in the snow. Like if you've ever driven snow, you know, the naturals, you turn with it. But, you know, if you want to stay straight out your car, you have to turn in. It's counterintuitive. So often when Jesus tells us the path to life, it's the exact opposite of what we would naturally think. Today is a great example how many of you are saying, oh, it's a great day. I was persecuted today. And yet Jesus says, no, if you can really see life from the perspective, it is a great day. You are exactly where you need to be. You are in the path of blessing. So we saw that the teaching is counterintuitive, and we also saw it's countercultural. That often what Jesus would teach is not just counterintuitive, it goes against the grain of our culture. It's not going to be popular. Now, I want to delve into this today because it's so important we understand why this is true. And so there in your note sheet, I put a very famous passage of scripture. It's John 3, 16. I know it's famous because we see it every NFL game. Anyway, uh, a lot of us are familiar with the first verse, but we miss the context, all right? So let's jump in. Uh, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Uh, We get that he gave him to die for us. We know that. That whoever what? Believes. Now, in the gospel of John, to believe does not simply mean to give a nod to God. Okay, I guess that's true. To believe means to trust in. Pistuo means to trust in, to listen, to follow, right? And so he says, whoever believes, comes under the leadership of Jesus, trusts him, follows him, will not perish, or in the Greek, be destroyed, but they'll have eternal life, which in John's gospel means not just length of life, but quality of life, okay? He says, um, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world. It's a big misunderstanding. Think Jesus came to condemn. No, he didn't. He came to rescue us. We're on the Titanic. He came with a boat to, to get us off, right? So he said he came to, uh, didn't come to condemn, but he came uh, to, uh, to save the world, rescue us. And so whoever believes, listens and follows him, will not be condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed. So catch this. What this passage is saying is that the reason someone is condemned or not condemned has nothing to do with your sin. You're not condemned because of what you've done against God, and you're not saved because of what you've done. You're condemned because of the, or not condemned, based on your relationship with the person who's come to save you. And so then he goes on, and he says, this is the verdict. Okay, so we're using language of condemnation. That's courtroom 
language. So some people are condemned, some people are not. What's the verdict? As, as the verdict is being read, here's the verdict, that light has come into the world. Now remember, in John 8, Jesus will later say that I am the light of the world. So Jesus has come into a dark world, a, a world that doesn't know which end is up, a world of darkness and evil, and he's come to light it up, to show us the path to life, Right? So he's come to light it up, uh, and he says, so light has come in the world, but people loved darkness. Now, this is odd. Like, who loves darkness, right? Like, during these heat, you know, this heat we've had recently, you're sitting at, your ni- at home, you're watching TV, you're reading a book, having a glass of wine, whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden, all the lights go out. Do you go like, awesome, I've been waiting for this moment. Let's just huddle here in the dark. No, you don't. you like, hey, let's get a flashlight. Or you say, well, wait, they'll come on in a minute. Or you have a candle. Like you want to get light back in the room. Like who wants to sit in the dark? I mean, it's crazy. Like when I was a kid, and my mom's going to hate this message, but when I was a kid, uh, we lived out in the country. Now, it's a fairly nice house, and my mom was a super Nazi like, uh, house cleaner, like w- very clean house. So I don't want to give you the wrong impression, mom. But uh, because we were in the country and the way the house was made, cockroaches would get in. Now, you would never see these during the day. It was super clean, right? But we come home from church, we would have bets on how many cockroaches would be out. And when you turn on the light, there'd be seven or eight. They're just running for cover, right? Cockroaches love the darkness, right? But like who would people, why would we love, you know, like we don't want the darkness. And so, so he says, this is the verdict that light has come in the world, but people love darkness. Now why, instead of light, because their deeds were what? I, I remember one time, when I was working as a, at a medical warehouse as a forklift operator, and I was, I was driving my forklift, it was on a Friday, uh, and so everyone knew I was a believer, right, and had pretty good relationships overall, uh, and so they knew, and there's this one guy, he was, uh, you know, I was in my 20s at the time, he was about 45, and uh, we normally got along well, his name was Mike, and, and so as we drove up, I said, hey Mike, so what do you got going this Friday? And he blew up. And he basically told me in language I can't repeat, (laughs) but it did involve an F word. Uh, He told me that he was committing adultery that weekend. I'm going out to blankety blank this woman who's not my wife. What are you going to do about it? He just like blew up. What was going on there? We're friends. It's that I'm bringing the light into his darkness. And he hated it. And he wanted to shut it down. And so he says, this is the verdict. Light has come, but people love darkness because the, uh, the light, because the deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil, what, how do they feel about the light? They hate the light and will not come in light because their deeds will be exposed. Now here's what's interesting. In light of the Sermon on the Mount, guess what? 
when we come back to this series in six weeks, like we're going to do a five-week series, you know, next, starting next week, and then we're going to come back to this, the Sermon on the Mount, and we come back, guess what's the very first thing Jesus is going to say after spelling out the character of the kingdom? He's going to say, you are the light of the world. That because of Jesus, he's lit it up, and we've been drawn to the light, and we've been transformed, and we know the path to life, right? We know who Jesus is. We know how life is to be lived, and we're, we have absorbed that light, and so we are now the light of the world. And guess what? Some are going to be drawn to that light, but others are going to hate that light because their deeds are evil. And so what he experienced as the light of the world, they killed him to try to put the light out. But the light didn't go out. The light got transferred to us. And so countercultural often becomes controversial. And Jesus says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, that this is just, that the path to life leads through the door of persecution. Did you catch that? The path to blessing leads through the door of persecution. Uh, and so if you, if you want to be my follower, just know what you're in for, that not everyone is going to be excited about that. It is often going to lead to conflict, and it's not about you, it's about the light. Right? Number two, the second principle goes like this, that conflict comes in different shapes and sizes, when we talk about persecution, we talk about this conflict as believers that we're going to be a part of, it comes in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small. Jesus starts off here early in the gospel by talking about smaller types of persecution. Look at 511. Blessed are you when people, what, what's his first thing? When they insult you, all right? So, so, you know, we've probably experienced that. Sometimes as a follower of Jesus, you've been insulted or people have said bad things about you. And so it's, it's a low level. Like, I mean, on the scale of persecution, it's not giving your life for Jesus. But he says, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to be insulted. Uh, he says that they're, uh, they're going to persecute you. He doesn't tell, say what he means. And they falsely say all kinds of evil. They're going to lie about you. And so, so that's kind of at one end of the spectrum, right? One end of the spectrum is you come to Jesus. And my guess, some of you have experienced this, right? When you came to Jesus, uh, a lot of you had family or friends that didn't want you to be part of their life anymore. Or they wanted to mock you or tell you you're crazy or this is a phase or uh, we don't want you around. And so we've experienced that. Some of you may have experienced this at your jobs. You may have been passed over for a promotion, not because of your work competence, because you're a believer in Jesus and you're not politically correct and hold the party line, right? And so we, we've experienced this level of kind of insult, maybe ostracized, being criticized. We've been, that's, that's kind of one level. But as we'll see, as we go through the gospel of Matthew, the price tag of following Jesus is often going to go up. So before, six months before he's crucified, Jesus pulls himself aside and said, by the way, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to be crucified. And he didn't mean like put a cross around your neck. Some of his men talk, he's talking to would be literally crucified. And so what we see in the gospel is that this price of conflict for following Jesus will really vary. Like on a scale of one to ten, it'll really vary. So, for example, let me give you, uh, we started the day with a story. 
10-year-old boy living in an African nation, and uh, all of a sudden, a new, new person comes to power. Everyone's excited. Then it starts going south. Some of you will recognize this. This is the decade of the 70s. The nation is Uganda. The dictator was Idi Amin. And by the time he had done, he had killed 500,000 people. It was a very difficult time to be a believer in Uganda. The 10-year-old boy in this story was Pastor Peter Kasiraview. A lot of you know, I just got back from Uganda, uh, speaking at a leadership conference organized by Pastor Peter, over 700 pastors from 13 nations in uh, Africa and around the world. And uh, so Pastor Peter was 10 when Idi Amin came to power. Now, Peter wasn't a believer then. He became a believer later. And then he met all these believers that had gone through that firsthand. And so they, they will tell the story of during those years and how dangerous it was to be a follower of Jesus. They, they were arrested. They were beaten. They were executed. He tells one story of a church that was meeting. Imagine this church here. You know, we're meeting, and all of a sudden, government soldiers break in. They'd driven up on truck. They broke in. They began beating all the Christians. And then they tied them up, and they threw them on trucks, and they took them to prison. They were slated for execution. And only through a miracle, when one of the top officials of the country who was slated to be overseeing that execution was in a very serious car accident, almost died two days before, were they released. So it was a time when Christians were starving. The churches were outlawed. They had to go underground. Now we're talking big-time persecution, aren't we? We've just jumped from this into the scale. You're insulted. You're ostracized. You didn't get a promotion to you're in prison. You're being beaten. You're losing your life. What's so interesting is you talk to Peter. He said, as you, as you talk to those believers who went through that time, they will look back, and yes, it was hard, but they will say there was never a time in their life they felt so close to Jesus. That he was incredibly present. He was tying their hearts together. He was empowering them to be bold in their faith. And you understand what Jesus means when he says, rejoice and be glad. He says, I will be there. I will meet you. And what Peter says is the association of churches he became a part of when he became a Christian. He said there was 50 of those churches in the association when he came uh, at at the start of 1971 when Idi Amin came to power. Guess how many churches there were eight years later after the persecution? 400 churches. The church of Jesus grew and expanded and Jesus was with them in the midst saying, rejoice and be glad you are on the winning team. You see? And so what I want you to catch is that, that as followers of Jesus, that in different cultures and in different times, I mean, there are places right now in the world that are experiencing what Uganda experienced in the 70s. But what I want you to understand is that in different cultures and different times, that, we, that the, the cost of the kingdom varies. And that leads us to number three. Number three goes like this. That the cost of the kingdom is going up. And this is where I need to have just a very honest conversation with you as followers of Jesus, as a church, whatever, that I really believe this, that in our culture right now, that the cost of the kingdom is going up. And this is important for us because for us in this culture, most of us here have never had to pay a big price. We may have known 
being ostracized. We have, may have lost some friends. We may have been mocked or insulted or passed over for promotion. But most of us, probably not, there might be some exceptions here because we have Christians from all over the world at Rocky Peak. But most of us here have never been imprisoned. Most of us haven't been beaten. Most of us haven't been, uh, you know, lost our lives. If you were, you wouldn't be here. But, you know, so we, we haven't gone through that, right? But what, so what I want you to catch is that in a given culture, that the cost of following Jesus changes over time. So for example, if we were to go back to Uganda in the 1970s, let's plot this on a graph. I put a graph there for you. I think this would be helpful just to visualize this. If you were to go back to, to Uganda in the 1970s, you would have, on the left side of the graph, you, you see a, a vertical axis of zero to 10. That kind of measures the level of persecution, right? Zero, nothing, 10, you're losing your life. And so you would see in 1970 that before Idi Amin came, there was very low persecution in Uganda. In fact, when I was in Uganda, I talked to Peter about this and said, my impression is before Idi Amin that there was very little uh, persecution. He said, yeah, it's just kind of like the States. I mean, it's like if someone comes to Jesus, maybe their family likes it, maybe they don't. There's some kind of, but there's nothing organizational, there's nothing governmental, nothing like that. It was just, you know, low grade. And so let's put, let's call that a two, all right? That 1970 Uganda, persecution level was at two, all right? Now, when Idi Amin comes to power, watch the graph jump up in 1971. They're between 70 and 72. It immediately skyrockets to a nine, doesn't it? Now, now we're going persecution big time, and that lasts for about eight years. And then when he is deposed in 1979, it instantly drops, Peter said, and went back to the way it was. So if you wanted to graph the cost of the kingdom in Uganda... In the 70s, this is what it would look like, right? Something like this. Now, the question is, what would a graph look like in our country in this, in this tenure, in this decade? And you and I might argue or disagree about what exactly the numbers are or like what does a three actually mean or what's a four actually mean. But what I would suggest, and I think you would agree with, is that in this, in this decade, from 2010 to 2020, that the cost of the kingdom is going up, isn't it? That if you go back to 2010, you did not have Christian businesses being sued and put out of business because they would refuse to bake cakes for a gay wedding. You didn't have that in 2010. In 2010 that it wasn't legal, as far as the United States and gentlemen, to, to have, say, same-sex wedding. It wasn't, it wasn't, that wasn't legal. In 2010, if you were a counselor and someone came to you in the state of California and said, I'm having same-sex attraction issues, and I want to talk to you about options of how to respond, and I want to talk about reparative therapy, and do you think that's helpful, and do you think it's possible to change? And in 2010, as a counselor in California, you could have that conversation, whether you believe it's effective or not, it's not the point, you could have a conversation. Here's what research has shown. You cannot do that today. And 2017, if you do that, you're up to lose your license. Something has changed in a very short time. And I want to talk about why this has happened. I feel like for many believers, it's a mystery. 
Like, why are all of a sudden we feeling more and more marginalized? Why are we feeling more and more on the outside? Why are we coming under critique? And it really goes back to one core thing. And that is, as a culture, we have bought into this concept that when it comes to spiritual reality, when it comes into moral or ethical life, there is no such thing as absolute right and wrong. So this has been a long time coming, right? It comes from the world of philosophy, it comes from Europe, it comes a long time. But this country, when it was formed, was formed uh, with kind of in a culture of Judeo-Christian ethic. Not that all the founders were Christians by any means. We know that's not true. But they, they all operated in the Judeo-Christian ethic, whether they realized it or not. So when it came to laws and standards and all, we were all kind of operating in that framework. But what, what's happened as a culture is increasingly as a culture, we have bought into the idea that in the realm of spiritual life, spiritual truth, or moral or ethical truth, there is no absolute truth with a capital T. So stop and think about this. There are very few things in our culture today that a politician who wants to get reelected can stand up and say, this is morally wrong. This is evil. There are a few things, sex trafficking, uh, child uh, molestation, uh, in most, uh, most settings, many settings, uh, say bigotry or prejudice, so obviously we haven't conquered that one, but a, a lot of that you can, you know, you can get up and you can say, this is wrong, and what happened in back east, and this is wrong, it's morally wrong, and you can say that and get away with it and get reelected. But if you stop and think about it, there are very few things in our culture that someone can use language like right and wrong, good and evil, that is getting increasingly diminished. And this, as followers of Jesus, puts us in harm's way. Because as followers of Jesus, we follow the light of the world. And he has lit it up. And we are no longer in the dark. And we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, as Ephesians chapter 4. And he's lit it up. And there's a path to life and there's a path to death. And we know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And he's made it very clear. And we know there is a God. There's, there's one God. There's not many gods. There's not 18 gods. not 18 ways to God. And so as followers of Jesus, we are at odds with the culture. And so what's happening is we stand up as believers and say, hey, we respect all your views and everything. You have a right. It's a free country. But we believe as followers of Jesus, we believe that sex is for marriage. We believe that God loves us and he's given us sex. It's an incredible gift. It's designed to bond one man to one woman for a lifetime of love and commitment. And we call that marriage. And within that, we can raise healthy kids. But we believe that contrary to what it might seem or appear at times, that any kind of sex outside of that, any kind of sex is destructive and therefore evil, our culture is going to have a fit, right? And and names are going to come out. Haters are going to come out. Bigotry is going to come out. Hate crimes are going to come out. And we set up, our culture is fine for you saying, hey, you know, I follow Jesus and it really works for me. And you study, you know, you follow Buddha and that works for you. They're fine as long as we don't try to make it exclusive. We say, hey, no, we follow the light of the world, not a light of the world, the light of the world. There is 
There is the way, the truth, the life. Everything else is a cul-de-sac. That when we come out and we say that, they say, you are a bigot. You are small-minded. You are not part of the future, right? You are not on the right side of history. And we say, yeah, we are on the right side of history. We're on the Jesus side of history, right? We're on the AD, not the BC. And what's crazy about this is that if you were to go back and study the early church, guess what two of the things they were most criticized for? Their sexual ethic that the Roman culture could not make any sense of and the fact that they claimed there was only one God. Romans were great. Uh, You want to be, hey, Parthians, Medes, Egyptians, bring all your gods. We'll just add them to the group. That's awesome. But if you want to tell us that there's only one God, we will kill you. It's crazy how we've gone full circle. And yet, as the, the movement of Jesus took over the Roman Empire, right, it took it over in spite of the fact that they were seen as they were seen the movement of Jesus of growing because he is the light of the world and he is the truth, right? And so, so this is a time for us not to go and hide. This is not for us the time to hide our heads. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. As followers of Jesus, if we hide at this time, the world has no light. This is not a time for us to hide our light under a basket. This is a time for us, our finest hour, to rise and shine and say, there is a way out. And so if you were to graph where we're going, I don't know exactly how you'd put the numbers, but it would be trending up. And this is why in our nation, you're seeing businesses shut down. It's why you're seeing businesses mandated. You have to provide for abortions. It's why you're seeing a very famous, gifted African-American head of the whole, the, the fire chief in Atlanta, who was praised by Obama and brought to Washington, D.C. as a model. But when he came out and said, I'm not trying to put this on my whole department, but personally, I believe that marriage is for a man and a woman. He was removed and fired as fire chief of Atlanta. Are you kidding me? Some of you are counselors here. You know this. It is illegal to have certain conversations in the state of California on same-sex attraction, it is illegal to even have that conversation even if your client asks you. Men and women, the price is going up. And the time for us is not to run and hide. The time for us is to listen to Jesus who says, rejoice and be glad you are on the winning team. Amen? So, this leads to a question. There in your note sheet, the final beatitude, one last question The question I have is, are you prepared to pay the price? And I think this is, for us as American Christians, it's just so important to be kind of realizing the times we're in and how the trend on that graph is going. And to realize that you're going to be faced with this. Some of you are going to be faced with losing your job over this. Some of you are going to be faced with uh, situations in your kid's school over this. You're going to be faced with this in in, uh, uh, kind of social organizations. This is going to be coming if you haven't faced it already, and we need to get ready. And the question is, 
Are you prepared? See, the thing is, if you were a, became a Christian in the 1970s in Uganda, you understood there was a price. And when you read the Beatitudes that started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom, and they end with, blessed are those who are persecuted, you go, yes, I understand that. Like, you, you understood when you signed up what you were signing up for. But as Christians in this country that have often not been asked to pay a big price, we don't understand persecution's not part of our paradigm. And that needs to change. And we need to understand that Jesus says, hey, if you're going to follow me, part of the kingdom, this is part, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be falsely slandered, it's going to happen, it may get worse than that. And so the question is, are you ready? You know, one of the highlights of my trip to uh, Uganda was that, a lot of you know that 11 years ago, that uh, I went to Uganda and I met with Pastor Peter and I asked him, how can we help? God's doing an amazing thing. How can we help? And he said, uh, he said Michael, the thing we need, number one, is, is we need theological education. He said, we, we've got people coming to Jesus. They're like witch doctors one day and they're pastors the next day. I'm going, yeah, you're right. Even elders, that'd be crazy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so... Uh, I, yeah, that's, he says, so we need help with that. And I said, let's do it. And so we, we joined in with some of the churches and we launched Gaba Bible Institute. I mean, training pastors. And so then that ministry has expanded. It's now African Renewal University. And you may remember back in, uh, at Christmas time, we did an initiative for the poor and we raised over $200,000, remember that, to, to educate Sudanese uh, students are uh, pastors because remember in Sudan there's a war raging so we can't start a Bible school there but we can import them to Uganda where they can get trained up and then go back to lead their congregations and so uh, it only $3,600 to, to do this for three years of education covers everything we raised 200000 so We've got our first 25 students here this, this last semester. And so when I was there, I got to see not only African Renewal University campus for the first time, which was awesome, but I got to meet six of these Sudanese students. Now, most of them were on holiday because it's summer vacation. But six were there, and so one of them was a guy named Richard, and so we're sitting in a circle, and I said, Richard, could you share your story? Tell me how you got here. And he says, well, you know, I was from Sudan, and he said it was very dangerous in Sudan, so my family, we were trying to escape from some of these warlords or armies or whatever it was, and it was very dangerous, so we're trying to escape at night. We couldn't turn on flashlights, we couldn't have any, uh, we couldn't have any oil lamps, uh, we couldn't have anything like that because we couldn't be seen, and so it was a super dark night, and as we're hiking along with my family, I get bit by a viper. And he said, so I tell my dad, but we just got to keep moving. There's nothing we can do. And so we keep going. But he said, pretty soon I'm getting sicker and sicker. And I tell my dad, I can't go on any longer. So he comes back. He can't see my legs. It's so dark. So he feels it. It's like huge. And so the father says to, to the family, we need to move on and look for sandy soil. And he's telling me this story. I'm not getting it, right? But I realized pretty soon that what he's telling me is that they find sandy soil. He tells the mother, the, the husband tells the wife to start digging a grave. So she starts digging a shallow grave in the sandy soil. And so the father goes off. He goes off to pray. He's a believer. He goes off to pray. As he's praying, he feels like God is telling him to start chewing some of the branches or the leaves or something of this tree. And so he begins just obeying. You know, listen and follow. He begins obeying. And then after he does that, he feels like the Holy Spirit tells him to go put this in the mouth of his son. Now, meanwhile, his son is completely buried up to his face. The reason is, is that in Sudan, it's their tradition, you don't bury a child until the father sees the face and says, okay. 
So he's completely buried. The son says he's having an out-of-the-body experience. He is out of his body. He said that he's beginning to experience the glory of the Lord. And he does not want to go back. So the dad comes, and he's putting this stuff in his mouth, and his son's trying to tell him, no, no, don't bring me back. But it doesn't work. He starts coming back. Like he feels his arms coming back, his legs coming, he feels himself going back in his body. And he's miraculously healed. And so now he, he's at Kampala, he's at African Renewal University studying the gospel, right? And so as we're talking to him, I said, Richard, so what do you want to do when you graduate? He says, I want to go back to my country and tell them about Jesus. They need Jesus. And I said, well, isn't that kind of dangerous? I mean, there's still a war going on. He goes, well, yeah. <laughs> and then David Fugoya, who is the vice chancellor of the school, you've seen him on screen here, he says to Richard, he goes, Richard, it is dangerous. They're all Muslims there. He's like, yeah. <laughs> but they just need Jesus. This is the call to courage. And Jesus gathers his small group of disciples that day. He says, let me tell you the good news. The kingdom that you've been praying for and waiting for for hundreds of years, the kingdom is near. And you can enter that kingdom through a relationship. And let me tell you, it is good news. Because I know many of you are poor and you've been beaten down and poor in spirit. And I know that you're sorrowful and mourn and you feel vulnerable. And I know you feel weak and powerless but I also know you hunger for what's right and good and true. And I know that your hearts, you're seeking God, you're pure in heart. And I know you want to be peacemakers. And I've got good news. The kingdom is coming. And then he says, but I got to tell you this. It's not going to be easy. That the door to the kingdom is going to lead through the, the path of the kingdom is going to lead through the door of suffering. And you're going to be insulted and you're going to be hated and you're going to be spoken against. And trust me, it's going to get worse. But he says, when that happens, you don't back down because you need to rejoice because what it means is you're on the winning team and God is with you and I'll be with you every step of the way and I will empower you and I will lead you and I need you to be the light of the world because I'm going to be leaving and you need to light it up. And I love what, what Peter writes about that time in Uganda there in your note sheet. There's this final question. I think I forgot to ask you again, right? Did I ask you the question? Okay, good. That was the last service. All right, so, but you see the quote there. The quote, this is from Peter. And he says, he describes that time in Uganda. And he says, the brethren survived during that terrible time on mutual encouragement, on prayer, on praise, and knowing that suffering for Christ is not a loss. But it's an opportunity, catch us, to show their whom? Their captors. The people that are beating them, the people that are arresting them, the people that are executing. Says this is an opportunity. When do you get this chance to show the love of Jesus? When at this time do you have your, your light get to shine? As Jesus' light shined on the cross as he prayed for those who persecuted him, there is no better time than when the darkness is the greatest, the light is the brightest. And he said there was a time to show them that God still cares even in the midst of unbelievable pain and suffering. And so men and women, this is our finest hour. As we watch our culture walk away from God, as we, we, we watch him embrace the darkness and embrace the lie that's increasingly tearing our culture apart, 
This is not a time for us to run and hide our light. This is a time to rise and shine and light it up. And Jesus says he will be with us every step of the way in his message as rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in the heavens. Amen? Let's pray. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are are, uh, closed. I want to give you a chance to reflect on this very sobering question. Are you willing to pay the price? I'm sure like me that there are many of us who are saying, well, I just hope I'm ready. And and Jesus, I'm going to need your help to be ready. I'm going to need your courage to be ready. I'm not going to be able to do this. But this is such a great question for us to ask and reflect. And I've asked the band to come and to sing over us. They're going to sing a special, going to read some kind of a current version of the Beatitudes. And, And as they read and as they sing, just let these words flood over you. Towards the end, we will join them. But reflect on what we've learned, this good news that God is coming, his kingdom is coming, it's been launched. It is good news for the poor, the poor in spirit, for those who are mourning, for those who are meek, for those who are weak, for those who are vulnerable, for those who are pure in heart, for those who are peacemakers and seeking after God, that the kingdom is coming and we get to be a part of it. Father, we pray you'd meet us during this time in Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for this series. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, for the promise, the invitation that your kingdom has come. And you're inviting us to join you in this kingdom movement. And the good news is that we get to experience you as our king in the presence of your kingdom here and now. And there is a future coming that is amazing. And you call us to help bring it into reality as we follow you. And we pray the prayer, may your kingdom come and your will be done in and through us on earth as it is in heaven. And God, today as we end with this challenging message that the kingdom is not something that's just good news, but it's hard news too. It's, there's a call to courage. We thank you for your encouraging words that we should rejoice and be glad because great is our reward in the heavens. And so God, we thank you for your promise that whatever comes, you'll be with us every step of the way. You'll meet us, you'll energize us, you'll empower us. And that we will not be shaken. So God, as we worship you now, as we bring your gifts, our offering, we will use this to build a place where the light of the world will continue to shine in the midst of an increasingly dark place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of heavens is near. And Jesus invites us to join him. Be part of this kingdom and to pray, and to act, and to reach out, that his kingdom would come, and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the challenge for us is that we would be that light that he's called us to be. I want to, just a couple things as we go. Number one, if you need prayer today for anything, uh, whether you're over in the ridge, here in our worship center, To my right and your left, there's always a team there, whether I mention it or not. Badges on, love to pray with you. But secondly, I want to invite you back next week. Next week, the very special week at Rocky Peak. We're going to be launching a new series that's called 40, charting the course uh, to transformation. In fact, you have an invite card like this inside your program. And so a lot of you know that this summer we passed an important milestone. 
a 40-year anniversary as a church. And um, so we want to celebrate that, right? Because many of you know that in the Bible, the number 40 is a very important number. That it often signals times of change, transition, crossroads for either good or evil. And we believe that God has called us that this, this season, it's a crossroads in the life of our church. We want to share with you some of the vision that God is giving us as a leadership team for the future. And the steps as, as we believe God is charting a course of transformation for our church as we listen and follow. And so it's going to be a great week. Next week will be a very special week as we look back a little bit on what God's done in our history. We look forward to the future. It'll be a great week as we lay foundation for this series. So encourage you to come. Encourage you to invite some people. It's a great time to, to come to church. Um, but until then, my word to you would be the words of your king, Jesus. Maybe you've never heard it exactly like this, but this is what he says. You, not the person next to you, you are the light of the world. He says, so your job is to light it up. Don't hide that light that I've given you under a basket. But let your light shine. And the way you do that is by loving God and loving people just through your good works. He said, and as you do that, you will glorify your Father. People will come to know him. They will come to worship him with us. And so may this be a week where you don't hold back. You love God. You love people. He'll light it up because you are the light of the world. Amen? God bless you guys. See you next week.